Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn about being uniquely wired, nurturing neurodiverse children and teens. My first guest is Dr. Nicole Birkins. She has a unique combination as psychologist, nutritionist, and special education teacher. Dr. Nicole Birkins has more than 20 years of experience supporting children, young adults, and families to improve behavior naturally. She is an expert in evaluating and treating a wide range of learning, mood, and behavioral challenges, including ADHD, autism, anxiety, mood disorders, and brain injury. Dr. Nicole has a doctorate in clinical psychology, a master's degree in special education and nutrition, as well as being a board-certified nutrition specialist. Welcome, Dr. Nicole. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. Great to have you here. And I also want to give a plug that you have a podcast as well. It's the Better Behavior Show. And you've got great, diverse and interesting guests on your episodes each week. Um, let's talk about you and your role as a behavior detective. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. When I started my career, my first job was with young children who had a variety of pretty significant neurodevelopmental kinds of issues, more severe autism, things like that. And, you know, when you're new in your profession, you've learned some things in classes, but you re your learning really starts when you start getting in there with kids and, and actually trying to figure it out. And, you know, a, a lot of people, I think, get really frustrated with children or adults for that matter, who have these kinds of challenges, because it's not always evident right on the surface what's going on. But I loved the challenge of it right from the get go of figuring out what the strengths were of these kids, what made them tick when they're, you know, were there these behavior kinds of issues, what was really going on there, you know, I could see right from the get go that these children weren't just intentionally being naughty and trying to give everyone a hard time, but that there were other things going on. And that really started my career path of, you know, thinking about things like a detective. Okay, when kids are having, you know, chronic temper tantrums, when they're constantly irritable, when they're not sleeping, when they are, you know, whatever the issues may be, what's really going on at the root of that? what's leading to these things, because in order to really resolve these issues, we have to understand what's causing them or driving them in the first place. And it just became so clear to me early on in my career as a teacher that the standard ways of handling child behavior of 
you know, rewards and punishments and behavior charts and things that just was not going to cut it and, and didn't really get to the root of the issue. So the, the journey of my career and going back and getting, you know, a doctorate in clinical psychology and then really immersing myself in the world of nutrition and integrative health has really been this detective work of figuring out what's at the root of the challenges that unfortunately more and more children are having today so that we can really solve those and help kids go on to um, live their full potential, to be able to give their gifts to the world and be the best human beings they can be. Because as parents, that's what we all want for our kids. What I love about your work, and one of the reasons that we had to have you on the show, is you are a proponent of non-medication solutions for anxiety, attention, mood, and behavioral symptoms in kids. That You believe that they can be used, but they are a last resort, not the first stop. Absolutely. And, you know, in my traditional grad school training, you know, what you're taught is you get these kids on medication, maybe give them a little counseling. That's the extent of treatment. And, and again, when I started doing that work, I thought, no, that there's way more going on than this. And what was interesting was I as I got into my work as a clinical psychologist, I kept seeing more and more kids coming in who were on one medication, two medications, five medications. And, you know, it hit me one day. I'm like, you know, these kids aren't getting better. And in fact, I think that many of my patients are getting worse the more medications they're on. And that really spurred me to really delve into the research or unfortunately the lack of research that is that exists on the ways that we medicate kids. And it really shifted my understanding and perspective of that um, to medication should absolutely be a last resort. And it's not that it's inappropriate for everyone. There are some very select cases where low dose of a single medication can be really life changing for a person. But unfortunately, we live in a culture now in a medical world where um, medication is far too often a first resort and not just one medication, but if one doesn't work, let's add another. If two's not good, let's up the dose and let's add another. And the reality is that we have absolutely no research showing us what the uh, short or long-term impact of that is on children. We've got sparse research in adults, and then there's sort of an assumption that, well, if things are safe in a four or an eight week trial with an adult, then well, if we just tweak the dose down a little, it'll be fine for kids. But there's actually no research evidence of that. So we have a generation or two right now that really are guinea pigs for this entire way of treating this stuff, of giving children these very potent psychoactive medications at very young ages. We see even toddlers come in on these medications now, antidepressants, antipsychotic stimulant medications. Um, and we have absolutely no research that supports doing this. And what I see in practice, and this is mirrored in the research that has been done, is there actually are a lot of significant downsides to resorting to these meds. I, I want to jump in here for one second, because you're seeing a lot of your patients when they are young. And in my practice, which is addiction, substance abuse recovery and trauma recovery, I'm seeing them as young adults and what they often will say to me, oh, I had been placed on medication when I was very young. I didn't learn how to regulate myself in any way without there being some substance. Nobody knew how to deal with me. And here I am in young adulthood and I'm resulting to whatever drugs I can get my hands on to just function day to day. 
That's right. And, you know, I treat a lot of teens and young adults and see exactly what you're talking about. And, you know, so there's two big issues there. One is the problems that we cause in children's brains and bodies as they grow and develop by having them on these substances. And are we making them more prone to, you know, issues where they are going to have substance use problems, you know, those types of things. But I think the other um, really big issue there is that we send children a message that there is something broken and wrong with you and you need a pill to fix it. And to me, that is one of the most damaging things that we do in the field of mental health or medicine is say to kids, there's something very wrong with you. You have no control over it. You need to take pills to resolve that. And that is something that I see then children growing into adolescence, young adulthood with this very defeated uh, mentality, this, this sense of there's this irreparable thing wrong with me. I've been taking these pills. I still feel terrible. There's no hope for me. This is what my life is going to be. And that is incredibly damaging. Yeah, I agree. Damaging to self-esteem. And then we know where that leads many of us into adulthood. That's right. That's exactly. We should give the the good news, the uplifting part of your work and what you do and how you support families is that with with an understanding about self-care, you know, what we eat, how we sleep, how we play, and how a brain grows and is to be nurtured. Talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. And that is the really hopeful part. You know, most of the families that I see, they come in very defeated. We've done everything. We've done all the meds. We've done all these treatments. Nothing's helping. And the reality is that there's this whole realm of things that no one has even talked with them about that makes such a profound difference. And it's exactly what you're saying, a focus on the fundamentals of nutrition. Very often in children who are having uh, emotional or behavioral kinds of challenges, there are nutrient deficiencies, there are imbalances, there are issues in their gut that are driving these brain problems. And most of them are really very solvable once we identify what they are. But parents aren't even being given the option of this. They don't even know that any of this exists. So that nutrition piece and that physiological health piece is is just huge and can be so quickly life-changing for kids and for their parents. Can you give a couple of uh, simple nutritional suggestions that would work kind of across the board, like something that we all should be doing, whether it's for ourselves or our families. It's just good, good, sound nutrition. Yeah. Couple things. The biggest one is shifting towards more what we call whole foods in the diet and less processed foods. Across the board, the research is showing more and more that this is important for our physical health as well as our brain function. So instead of, you know, things that are packaged, uh, you know, and have chemical ingredients and things like that in them, that we eat more of the whole food, the way that the food would actually grow or be produced. So we're eating, you know, meats and fish and whole grain and fruits and vegetables and nuts and seeds and those kinds of things as opposed to packaged, processed, boxed, canned things. Now, luckily, there are more options coming into the marketplace as people become more aware of the improvements they can make to their health with this. There are more convenience foods that are organic that don't have the chemicals, but that's a big one, particularly for children. Children are very sensitive and susceptible to negative impacts from the preservatives, the dyes 
sprays, the artificial sugars, the high fructose corn syrup, all of those things that are in processed foods. So one of the very foundational basic things that families can start to do is to start reading labels and just shifting. It doesn't have to be an overnight, night and day thing, but starting to shift towards replacing some of those very heavily processed chemical-filled products with, with more whole food options is a big one. And if budget is a concern, and for many people it is, you know, right. if you even receive some form of subsidization, you know, whether it's SNAP or uh, EBT or any of those programs, they do allow for shopping in many farmers markets now. I mean, we are not uh, relegated to buying canned food or frozen food. People who need the um, services can get good, fresh, wholesome food. Absolutely. There's more and more communities now that have programs that they're implementing, even in food pantries and with farmers markets and all of that, because we have a profound problem now across the board with not only the mental health issues, but also the chronic physical health issues, diabetes, heart disease, all of that. So all of these programs are really shifting to allow people access to this. So so budget and, and finances don't have to be um, you know, a barrier against people being able to access the kind of food that they need to support their health for their family. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Dr. Nicole Birkins. To learn more about her and her work, go to drberkins.com on Twitter at Dr. Birkins and on Facebook, Dr. Nicole Birkins. I also want to give a shout out about your podcast, The Better Behavior Show, and a book that you have written entitled Life Will Get Better, Simple Solutions for Parents of Children with Attention, Anxiety, Mood, and Behavior Challenges. Here comes that break. We'll be right back, and that is a guarantee. Just a second. Before we take that pause, I want to mention my new fiendish entertainment obsession. Best Fiends is a free downloadable app that is a seriously good fun way to redirect that busy brain of yours from current events, anxiety, and worry to amusing interactive mind play that engages the old noggin in new ways to solve puzzles, collect characters, and engage in socially distanced competition with friends you know and people you don't. For me, it's a little stress relief in the palm of my hand. I spend a few delightful minutes each day to focus my attention on this highly engaging digital universe that challenges my skills. Best Fiends gives my brain a rest from the daily routine and transports me to another colorful realm that is a unique and exciting puzzle experience unlike any other out there in cyberspace. In fact, I play while waiting in lines and sometimes I steal a few minutes for myself between virtual meetings. Best Fiends never gets old. Every month there is fresh, new, dynamic content and events that will delight your senses. So why not join me in my happy, harmless obsession over at Best Fiends? Engage your brain and focus your mind while enjoying a little socially distanced playtime. Best Fiends has thousands of levels already, with new levels, events, and characters added every month. It's hours of fun right at your fingertips, and you can even play offline. With over 100 million downloads and tons of five-star reviews, Best Fiends is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Did you know that Harvesting Happiness travels? 
Lisa delivers unique on-site mental fitness programming at corporations, universities, and organizations around the world that boosts morale, creates positive change, and improves well-being. Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to connect and learn more. Welcome back to the show. We are continuing the conversation with Dr. Nicole Birkins about what it means to be uniquely wired and nurturing neurodiverse children and teens. Let's get to it. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about nurturing neurodiversity in our children, and I would dare say even ourselves. Right, Nicole? This is not really limited just for kids. There are plenty of adults walking the planet that have these behavioral issues as well. Absolutely. This is uh, good information and, and excellent strategies for any of us who are human. Yes, for being human. Let's go to the vast importance of sleep and how it plays on our behavior. This is one of, I think, the most underestimated or underappreciated elements of supporting just human functioning in general, but particularly when we're talking about children, teenagers, and young adults supporting their brain development and brain function. We know that getting even 30 minutes less than the you know amount of sleep that's needed for a child leads to a deterioration in their mood, in their behavior, increases anxiety. Um, so sleep is so, so critical. And something that I uh, think is important to know from the research literature is that up to 40% of children and teens diagnosed with ADHD actually have an undiagnosed and untreated sleep problem. Now, wow. that's... Wow. <laughs> It's, it's really important information for people to have that so often children are given that diagnosis and then put on stimulant medication or put through whatever treatments where the real issue is that they aren't getting enough good quality sleep. Maybe they're just sleep deprived or they are having some sleep disorders. They're having restless sleep. They're having sleep apnea. They're having issues that are not allowing their brain to get enough of the good restorative sleep that's needed to support proper brain function. And these kids then look very irritable, very hyperactive, very impulsive, uh, very inattentive throughout the day. And it's rooted in their sleep when we fix the sleep problems and get them, you know, enough good quality sleep at night. Boy, all those things, those symptoms suddenly, um, you know, improve. So really important to know that children and teenagers need to be getting enough sleep. And what we're seeing is a rampant problem in the teen years now where uh, teenagers are really sleep deprived more so than at any other point in history. And, you know, we can get into what the factors are with that. A big one being social uh, media, uh, electronic yes. devices. but they are very sleep deprived. And what we're seeing is the rates of things like depression, anxiety, suicidality, ADHD, increasing dramatically in the teen years as a function of sleep deprivation. We know that every hour less than that these teens get of sleep, their chance of having one of these mental health issues goes up significantly. So we cannot underestimate the impact of that. And it's important as parents that we don't just throw our hands up and go, well, 
you know, there's nothing I can do about my kids' sleep. There are a lot of things we can do, and we need to be focused on that even as they get older to make sure that we are teaching and supporting and enforcing good sleep hygiene. It's that important for brain function. And I think explaining that to our kids, I mean, I know in my household, I have young adults now, but when my kids were in their teenage years and still in the house, that we talked about, you know, like what happens to your body and your brain when you don't get enough sleep. Absolutely. It's a that education is big. And I do that all day long in my clinic. I don't just tell kids what they need to do. I help them understand why, because the more they understand about how their brain and body are functioning and how they can support and improve that, the more motivated they are to do it. You know, a big issue is that school starts just too darn early for kids at the middle school and high school years. It's just not compatible with their natural circadian rhythms um, in those years of of rapid, uh, you know, brain growth. And that that's a real issue. But, you know, while we cannot force our school districts to push back um, the start time, we can, as parents, make it a priority to model going to bed on time, to enforce that, to say homework will be done, you know, by this amount of time, we're turning devices off, you're not having devices in your room at night. As a family, we are prioritizing getting the minimum eight hours of sleep that we know that teens need to function well. Um, And that's super important. And when we can help them understand that, and buy into that and start doing that while they're still living with us, they're much more likely then as they grow into independent adulthood to take those skills and those habits with them and, and be healthier then with their sleep as adults. Let's talk about movement and exercise and yes. why it's so essential, not just for a healthy body, but for a healthy brain and, and reducing emotional challenges. I'm so glad you raised that because people tend to think about exercise, or I prefer the word movement. Exercise sort of, you know, is a dirty word to a lot of people. (laughs) No, (laughs) no. Movement, you know, people think about that as, oh, yeah, to lose weight, you know, to keep my heart healthy. But actually, the brain thrives on movement. And movement and regular physical activity is one of the most profound ways we can support our mental health, both for children and adults. Something that many people don't realize is that in every study that has compared regular moderate exercise to antidepressant medications, the exercise wins. So what we really should be doing is prescribing regularly occurring moderate amounts of exercise for people and particularly for kids. The impact of sedentary behavior on children is even more profound from a brain standpoint on children than it it is on adults because part of how the human brain grows and develops during um, childhood is through experiences in the world, is through movement. So the more sedentary children are from their infant, you know, months all the way through those childhood years, the more negatively that impacts their brain's ability to grow and develop and function in proper ways. So we have a situation, you know, where kids are sitting in school now, you know, we have a lot of states that mandate all day, every day kindergarten, you know, we've got young kids sitting at desks for 
six to seven hours a day. We've taken away recess. We've taken away physical education. We basically seem to be, you know, on a path to do all of the things in our education system that make brain growth and and healthy brain development worse for kids. But the reality is children need physical movement. And even through those teen years, the brain thrives on that. It allows us to focus better. It allows our mood to be better regulated. It increases those feel good chemicals in the brain and the body. So that movement, getting kids off the couch, getting them out on their bikes, running around, playing with friends, going to the gym, doing sports, whatever it is, is a really, really important thing for parents to be enforcing. And you said something a a few minutes ago about modeling the behavior regarding sleep. I think modeling all of this behavior, you know, sound food, sound sleep, sound movement, self-regulation when when it comes to the devices and prioritizing connection, which you also talk about. Absolutely. That modeling is so critical. Children will do much more the things that they see us doing as opposed to the things they have us telling them to do. So we can tell kids, you need to drink more water. You need to spend less time on your devices. You need to go out and play. You need to, you know, do this or that. But the reality is if they don't see us doing those things, they're not very likely to do them because our behavior, what we are modeling speaks so much louder than the words that we're saying. So if we want to have our children move down the path of developing those healthier uh, behaviors, we have to start by doing them ourselves. We have to model eating in a way that is brain and body supportive. We have to model closing our computer and going outside and doing things or engaging in conversation or playing a game without having our cell phone out or getting to bed on time and not being you know, exhausted in the morning. That's where it starts, not with trying to control or manage what our children do, but managing what we are doing. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you. What about for the parents that are fit to be tied? They just uh, have had it. They're, they're exhausted themselves. Is there, are there any tips or any coaching that you could give to those, those parents about how to find their way through the maze of what it is to have a neurologically diverse child? Yeah. And certainly that is uh, a challenge. There are families who had just spend an incredible amount of time and energy walking on eggshells every day, trying to support their child through the day. And it is depleting and exhausting and all of that. So one of the things that's really important is for parents to seek out support for themselves. And that feels very counterintuitive to most parents. It's like, no, I need to focus all my attention on my kid. But the reality is, if as parents, we are depleted and worn down and have no resources for ourselves, we can't help our child. So that self-care becomes important, finding a support group, finding a therapist, reaching out to family members, working with the school, whatever that needs to look like to get a community of support to help you through that and to manage your own stress and your own health around that, that becomes a really important priority in those situations. And then in my book, I 
I, I get much more into detail on these topics to, to sort of talk about, okay, here's the things to do. And if you're running into challenges, you know, here's, here's some, some, uh, you know, additional kinds of supports. But I think finding a practitioner that can partner with you that really knows how to look at these things and, and knows how to get you beyond just sort of putting band-aids on things, but really getting to the root, um, that's really important too. But I think it has to start with parents realizing that taking care of themselves as a caretaker is is really a primary goal. And the book that we're speaking of is Life Will Get Better, Simple Solutions for Parents of Children with Attention, Anxiety, Mood, and Behavior Challenges. Dr. Nicole Birkins, thanks for joining us on the show. If you, listeners, if you or someone you know has a child and needs support, have a listen to the Better Behavior Show. To connect with Dr. Nicole, please do so at drberkins.com, on Twitter at Dr. Birkins, and on Facebook, Dr. Nicole Birkins. Thanks, Nicole. Here comes a quick pause. We'll be right back. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness. And follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. And we are back continuing the conversation about neurodiversity, what it means to be uniquely wired and how we can nurture our children and teens. My next guest is Debbie Reber. She's a New York Times bestselling author, speaker, and the founder of Tilt Parenting, a website, podcast, and global online community for parents raising differently wired children. Her Tilt Parenting podcast, on which she interviews high-profile thought leaders in parenting and education, has grown to be a top podcast in iTunes kids and family category. Prior to launching Tilt, Debbie spent 15 years writing inspiring books for teen girls before becoming a writer and consultant. Debbie worked as a television development and production executive for Cartoon Network and Nickelodeon. And today she's here with me talking about her new book, Differently Wired, Raising an Exceptional Child in a Conventional World. Good morning, Debbie. Thanks for joining me on the show. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about your story because you are the mom of a differently wired son named Asher. I am. I am the lucky mom of a 13-year-old atypical kid. He is, you know, just to describe him, he is gifted. He has a diagnosis of ADHD and Asperger's. So he's a complicated, fascinating, and uh, very quirky kid that I have the honor of raising. Uh, and I would say genius. I mean, kids with Asperger's, I've, I've got a girlfriend who's got actually two, two boys with Asperger's, and these kids are brilliant. Yes. Well, he believes he's the smartest person in most any room. I would say when I'm in the room with him, that's definitely true. He's uh, He thinks about things at a much different level than I do, which uh, I actually homeschool him has, has been really interesting for me to figure out how to do that for him. Talk a little bit about what it's like raising your son. You know, some stories that might be kind of amusing. I, I read one in your book about video games and, and getting him to depart the console. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the thing about differently wired kids is they are moving through the world so differently. So the the typical 
parenting strategies that we might read about in books or, you know, that our friends use, use with success don't necessarily work for us. And, you know, I'm not sure if this is the story you're thinking of, but um, there was a time when I was really struggling to get him off uh, playing, I think it was playing Minecraft on his iPad. And he was pretty dysregulated and getting really frustrated. And I was insisting that he do his coping routine because he was getting really upset. And he has a strategy for how to self-calm and self-regulate. And he was getting upset and I was getting upset. I was demanding, you know, do your coping routine. <laughs> and I, I, of course, was like pouring gasoline on a fire. So I removed myself from the situation, got myself calm-ish, calm-ish. And I came back in the room and he was totally calm. And I apologized for, uh, you know, just not be speaking to him in the way I would like to speak. And, and I said, actually, I think I'm the one who needs the coping routine. And he's like, well, do you want to do it with me? And he's like, I have this meditation CD that my therapist gave me. Do you want me to show you how to do it? So I was like, okay. And he laid a blanket down on the ground and he showed me how to do deep belly breaths. And we had this lovely moment. And uh, that was just one of many times where he has shown me that he's, really my greatest teacher. And I have a lot to learn from this human. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a great story. And yes, that was the one I was thinking of. In your book, Differently Wired, you encourage readers to shift the way differently wired kids are perceived in society. What sparked your interest in A, writing a book like this, and B, seeing that there needs to be really a paradigm shift in the way we raise these kinds of kids? Yeah, I think I was just so frustrated with what I was experiencing and I'm a very resourceful person. I'm, you know, I'm a certified life coach. I've got all these tools. I have a great network and I could not figure out what to do. I didn't know how to, you know, find a school fit for him. I didn't know how to just kind of find myself in the equation and parent with confidence and I just was like, you know, if I'm struggling this much and I'm, I'm, this is kind of what I do for a living, like I'm really good at connecting and pulling resources and figuring out a plan, then most people are are even in worse shape than I am. And and I know that, you know, more than 20% of kids are neurologically atypical. And I just was like, this isn't okay. It's not okay for us to feel isolated in what we're going through when we're in every class, you know, our kids are in every classroom, in every school, in every country. And so, you know, I wrote the book as a way to help parents not only feel like they're not alone, but have real strategies for how they can experience their journey differently. And then the bigger picture hope is that it does shift the conversation and, and help people realize, you know, educators and parents of typical kids and really everyone that these kids are here for a reason. They're not broken. They're different. And that we need to figure out how to support them so that they can really tap into their gifts and contribute to society in the way that they're intended to. 
Let's talk a little bit about these kids being in every classroom, because in my experience through my friendship with a family where two of the kids have Asperger's, and then also just in my own practice where I see parents coming in with their own mental health challenges as a result of feeling perhaps powerless or impotent to get the children the uh, services that they need. They're frustrated. They don't know how. And, and the system really is not speaking to the needs of all. It's speaking to the needs of the middle. And so many of our children are outside of that middle zone. Yeah, it's the biggest challenge, I think, for our you know generation of parents. You know, if you think about a classroom of 25, having at least five kids in that class who are different learners and likely many more, you know, if you account for even just anxiety or kids who are gifted and and have different things going on. And so we need to figure out, and I, I don't have the answer for what this looks like, and I, I, I hope that we can figure it out in, in my lifetime, but we need to figure out a way to help kids learn in the way that they learn and as opposed to trying to continually, um, you know, focus on their deficits to get them to fit into this system, as you said, is wasn't designed to accommodate them. Because when we, when we try to keep uh, getting kids on a path that they're not intended to walk down, they A, don't get to develop their strengths because we're so focused on their deficits. And then B, they start to identify as a bad kid or that there's something wrong with them. And, you know, to start off your life getting the message from a very early age that you're broken, it's not a, it, you know, it takes years to recover from that. And and no one deserves that. These kids are incredible. They have incredible gifts and they deserve to feel great about who they are because they're, they're creative, resourceful, whole, fascinating people. I agree with you. In fact, I think a lot of these kids see life in a very beautiful way. You know, they don't they don't see or feel some of the challenges that the other kids are feeling. I don't know. I'm stumbling over my words because I'm trying to get at a point that I can't really articulate. Like when you look at these kids that you're talking about, these uniquely wired kids, they're in joy. I mean, you know, we're talking about harvesting happiness over here, but they're finding joy in things that are maybe different than other kids. And that should be celebrated. I guess I'm saying that we need to meet these kids where they're at versus the other way around. I completely agree, and I think, you know, a lot of these kids are nonconformists, and that is different from, especially like a middle schooler where it's all about fitting in, and these kids, many are just marching to their own drum, and we want them to do that, right? And, you know, and I would also say a lot of these kids struggle with feeling things intensely that can be really hard, too, right? Especially in the world in which we live, they have, their emotional experiences can be really intensely joyful and the other way. So it's, it's challenging in that respect, but I agree there's something really freeing about not really wanting to fit in, you know, and just kind of moving through the world and seeing things in a unique way. And those are the people who become the problem solvers of the future who can look at challenges like societal challenges and have a unique perspective on that that I think can really contribute. We're going to need to take a break. And when we come back, we're continuing the conversation with author Deborah Reber about her new book, Differently Wired, Raising an Exceptional Child in a Conventional World. To learn more about her, her work, and Tilt 
Parenting, which is also an online community. She's got a podcast. Please go to www.tiltparenting.com on Twitter at Tilt Parenting and on Facebook. That page is also Tilt Parenting. Here comes that pause. We'll be right back. And that is an absolute promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. A boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Continuing the conversation with my guest, Debbie Reber, we're talking about what it means to be uniquely wired, nurturing neurodiversity in our children and teens. Let's get back to the discussion. Debbie, talk a little bit about the online community, the kinds of services and support you offer there, as well as your podcast. Well, I created Tilt because it's I guess I, I'm one of those people who creates what I always needed but doesn't exist. So I wanted to create an online home that felt kind of like the cool club for parents like me. You know, a lot of what exists while having helpful information and tools, it kind of, you know, just design-wise and otherwise makes you feel like you're fixing a problem. And I wanted this to feel really warm and inviting. So Tilt Parenting is, uh, you know, I have an online community, most of which exists on social media. So uh, Facebook is where we tend to hang out. And then through my podcast, which I do weekly interviews, I've, I've done over 100 now. And I bring on just incredible, you know, thought leaders and parenting experts and authors and also parents who want to share their experience. But my goal is to give access to parents like me who are feeling like they don't have any tools or know where to turn to give them access to really insightful conversation that they can, you know, bring into their lives right away and, and make a change. So, um, and what's been really cool is just the response, I get emails from parents every day just saying, oh, thank God I found my tribe. You know, I, I didn't realize that, you know, other people felt the same way I did or were going through the same thing. And it's been really gratifying and personally fulfilling to to know that, you know, that I've helped to connect people and then I get to benefit from it as well. <laughs> We all need a tribe, right? We really thrive yeah. when we're in community. So I can see how this would be eye-opening and feel like home for so many. Yeah, yeah. That's the goal, and, it, and it's been really wonderful to, to see that happen. I'm doing book events right now, and to get to be in the room with these parents and, and see what's happening and how they're leaving and forming local 
groups together. It's been really inspiring. There are 18 tilts in your book, Differently Wired. Talk about them. So the tilts are kind of the real practical uh, strategies that I present in the book, and I describe them as shifts, like subtle shifts in thinking and beliefs that can have a profound impact on the way we as parents are experiencing our relationship with our child, and then as a result, can profoundly affect how our kid feels about themselves. And so they're very kind of subtle things, but they really stem from doing a lot of self-examination and exploring our own thinking about what our journey was going to look like, what our expectations were, and then what is kind of getting in our way from accepting who our child is. Can you share two or three of the most common tilts or ones that parents say, oh, yes, those resonate most with me? Yeah, the first one is one of my favorites. It's question everything you thought you knew about parenting. And I think that's (laughs) where we all have to start because, you know, I know I certainly thought I was going to be like a superb parent. I read all the books. I had the training. I, you know, I'm like going to rock this thing. And, you know, my child had other plans and uh, was like, I'm not going down that road. I'm going down this road. And, you know, so many of us fight, you know, reality, right? The, the divide between expectations and what's actually happening. So we do need to step back and really question every single assumption that we had, figure out where that came from, and then, you know, dispute it, come up with evidence of how that may not actually be true, and that's okay. Uh, So that's one of my favorites. And another one that I just love is, um, it's Tilt 5, it's Parent from a Place of Possibility Instead of Fear. And I'm just a big believer that we really have two choices in, in with everything in life. We can choose love or we can choose fear. And a lot of us, especially with our kids, we have so many concerns about future unknowns and what's happening that we tend to live in that fear space. And when we can step outside of that and imagine what could be and choose possibility and take those leaps of faith on behalf of our kids, it's amazing how things can change for our our whole family and our child can thrive in ways we never believed possible. You know, as you're speaking, I'm thinking, well, these are just, you know, great tilts for all of us. I mean, maybe yeah. sometimes we, <laughs> we, we need that the child that is unique in this way to make us really stand up and pay attention to, you know, Brene Brown talks about her wholehearted living and something that I certainly aspire to. And most people actually aspire to if they think about it. But sometimes it's, you know, events catalyze that the paradigm shift. Absolutely. I mean, I I think these kids can be our greatest gifts if we're willing to lean into who they are and pay attention and, and then, you know, do the work on ourselves. For me, I wouldn't have it any other way. I'm grateful for how my life has opened up because of who Asher is. Here's one that I really love. It's tilt number nine. Give a loud and unapologetic voice to your reality. Talk a little bit about that because sometimes, you know, maybe some of us don't want to speak what reality is. Yeah, I think so many of us are really living in silence and secrecy because we're afraid of what other people will think. We're afraid of the stigma that's attached to so many 
different ways of being neurodiverse. And I, you know, I'm not saying walk around with a megaphone and announce to the world what's going on, but I think in order for us to normalize who our kids are and our experience and, and give other people permission to say, oh, yeah, me too, like that's happening with me, we have to talk about it. We have to talk about it matter-of-factly. We have to just be, yeah, this is what's going on without any kind of, you know, judgment or you know, emotional attachment that this is a bad thing. And the more of us that use our voice, then other people are going to feel empowered to join in. And that's when we can really start to see change happen. And here's another really good one for any parent, for any purpose. This is tilt number 16, show up and live in the present. And this is probably the most challenging for many of us. But I think these kids have got it down. They're very present-based. They are, and this has been my personal journey to 16 being present. That's my work right now, <laughs> and, uh, and I get a lot of opportunity to work on it. But really, to lean into who these kids are, we don't have a choice. You know, to meet them where they are, to be tuned into what's happening with them, be able to connect, communicate, we have to be fully engaged in the moment. And you know, it's hard. I have a very busy life. Most parents do. But taking that time to just really be wholly there, that is, it's like the key to unlocking everything. Our kids know it. They know when we're present with them. They feel, they relax. You know, the communication starts to flow. It's just, it's incredible. It's been the biggest challenge for me and and also the thing that's changed my relationship with Asher more than anything else. You know, what's interesting about that being present thing (laughs) is that if we're here in the present, it's 99.9 tenths percent of the time really okay. Absolutely. You're exactly right. The, The pain that we feel, right, comes from worries about the future or regret over the past, you know. So, yeah, that present state is really where it's at. And it's, you know, it's not easy. I'm not saying that, yeah, just live in the present. And, you know, it requires work. But, you know, even moments of presence every day can add a lot to your life. Well, it's a practice, right? It, it just like parenting yeah. is a practice. None of us has an owner's manual that arrives when the child does. We've got to figure it out for ourselves and each child is is different. That's exactly right. And that's one of the tilts I have is becoming fluent in your child's language. And that's exactly why we need to be willing to adapt our style and learn how we can best communicate with who our child actually is. And it, yeah, it takes a lot of practice. And luckily, we get a lot of opportunity to practice and keep refining those, uh, those skills. Well, we are nearly out of time. And I want to thank you for hanging out with me this morning. I've been talking with Debbie Reber about her new book, Differently Wired, Raising an Exceptional Child in a Conventional World. You can connect with her at www.tiltparenting.com. At tiltparenting.com, she has access to her podcast episodes, access to the community, resources, and on Twitter, she can be found at Tilt Parenting. And on Facebook, that page is also Tilt Parenting. 
And I would say, Debbie, you know, one of the cool things about this book is I know you have it focused towards this differently wired child, but really it's a nice little handbook for raising any children, including ourselves, to be honest with you. Yeah, I get that feedback from a lot of friends with neurotypical kids. They said, this is all completely applicable to my life and super helpful. So I hope it does have that kind of broad reach in that way. Well, it's been said that necessity is the mother of invention, and you certainly took that to heart by creating this community and and the tribe of Tilt Parenting. So thanks for joining me on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests, Dr. Nicole Birkins and Debbie Reber, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Don't forget to stay safe and healthy. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUURadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks for listening.